now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is author Dr. Sharon Hewitt Rollett, who has a PhD in analytical philosophy from New York University. She is also a runner-up in the Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies essay contest for the best evidence for the survival of human consciousness after death. Her essay has been released in book form, and it's called Beyond Death. Dr. Rollette, thank you so much for being my guest today, and congratulations on your essay in the contest. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, and, and thank you for inviting me to be on your show. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Thank you. Me too. If you don't mind, can we first start with your own personal spiritual journey and how that led you down the path that you're on today? Sure. Um, yeah, that could take the whole show, but oh, I will try uh-oh. to be brief. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, to put it in a nutshell. Um, so I grew up uh, evangelical Christian, Southern Baptist, um, and was very was very committed to that um, framework. Um, but then I went away to Christian college, and um, even though, you know, it was a Christian college, it was a college that really encouraged um, intellectual thought and questioning your faith and figuring out why you believed what you believed. And the things that I learned there in the, um, in my philosophy classes and elsewhere led me to really start to question whether there was a God or not. And I looked around for evidence that would allow me to believe in God. But honestly, at that point in my life, I felt like I didn't see any. Um, I really suddenly could conceive the world without God. It didn't seem like um, you had to have God to explain, um, yeah, what we experience in this world. So that was a really difficult realization for me. I didn't want to to lose that faith. Um, And it was a period of a few years in which I came to that realization that to be honest with myself, I had to make that transition. And so I was I declared myself an atheist and um, was kind of, it was very difficult for my family and friends. And um, so all through my twenties, I was basically an atheist. um, And it wasn't until I was, I guess, 29 or so that I started to have these experiences that were similar to the things that I had wanted to experience back when, when I was um, starting to question my faith, things that would have made me um, probably retain my belief in God. Uh, but they started happening about 10 years later. These little, they were little synchronicities at first and um, sort of some experiences where I just kind of felt this other presence. Um, and I wasn't willing to call it God at this point. Um because I, I was skittish about all of that religious stuff at this point, but I, I felt like there was something more and I was really interested in these synchronicities I was experiencing. And as they got stronger, I started um, investigating them more and investigating the research that had been done on these kinds of experiences. And um, I had a one really crazy big, um, synchronicity back in 2015 and when that happened to me it's like this is for real the there really is something else to this universe than the physicalist mechanistic 
world that uh, mainstream science has been telling us exists. And so I just, I went, um, I really started devoting myself like almost 24 seven to researching this stuff um, from that time on and have ended up writing several books about it and just, um, I still don't, I still am a little nervous about saying that I believe in God at this point, because I feel like people have so many preconceptions about what that means, or, you know, you talk to 10 different people, they'll have 10 different ideas about what God is. And, and often it's a very judgmental sort of picture of um, God, or they think if you say you believe in God, then you must follow a certain religion. And I really really take my own experience as my guide in this area. So I, I'm nervous about, you know, saying anything that would put me in a certain box. Um, but I do believe that there is a higher intelligence and that it seems, at least in my own life, seems to be quite benevolent. Um, so a lot of people would call that God. Um, mm. But I have to put those caveats in there. You mentioned that you had some significant experience. Was this the experience that pushed you from doubt into belief? Can you briefly just tell us a little bit of what that experience was? The one that happened in 2015 that, yeah, that convinced me, yes, there really is something to this. Um, so this happened um, during a period of my life where I had gone through a really difficult um, breakup with somebody that I had been engaged to uh, be married to. And a few years later, um, I had married someone else. He had moved on in his life as well. Uh, and so, but we had, we had stopped talking to each other. We just kind of, you know, went our separate ways. And I went through this period where my ex was very much on my mind. I was thinking about him a lot, um, but didn't feel like I should get in touch with him. And it's just, he was very much on my mind. And he was on my mind, particularly this one weekend uh, when I went to Pennsylvania to hang out with some old college friends of mine you know, we were kind of out in the boonies um, in an area that wasn't familiar to us. And so we were driving around looking for a grocery store to get something to eat. And not knowing the area, my friend uh, asked her phone to find us the nearest grocery stores. And then she was actually driving the car we were in. So she handed me her phone to look at what the results were and choose one. So when she handed me the phone, it was showing me uh, a list of grocery stores there in Pennsylvania. And all I did when she gave me the phone was to hit the map button so that I could see it um, on a map instead of just a list. Now, I should add one other piece of information, which is that my ex um, was French and he lived in France and we had actually lived in France together. Um, so when I hit map on, on this, my friend's phone, instead of showing me those grocery stores in Pennsylvania that it had on the list just a moment ago, it showed me a map uh, with five little points that showed me um, stores called Eau Leclerc, which is a French grocery store chain. And each one of them had a French uh, town name after it. So this was curious. Um, one of the town names was one that I recognized, but I wasn't exactly sure where in France it was. It was named Carré. So when I got home later, I decided to Google it and see what region it was in and discovered then that it was in uh, the region of Brittany where my ex lived and where I had lived with him. And when I saw 
that I, ha I just had this extra level of conviction that if this coincidence was happening that was so, I mean, it's so strange for a GPS to suddenly say you're somewhere else and to say in another country across the Atlantic Ocean, right. um, if it was that strange, I was like, I think this GPS was showing me where he was on that day. Hmm. And not wanting to contact him, I just decided, well, I'll just Google his name and the date and see if by chance that information is on the web. And lo and behold, um, he's also a writer. And so he has a blog and there was an entry on his blog that came up that said he was going to be at some event in this little town in Brittany that I didn't recognize the name of. But when I Googled that town, it was two miles from one of the grocery stores that I had seen hmm. on that map. So that's what let me know that <laughs> the physical world sometimes reacts to what we are thinking about um, and gives us important information about them. It, I felt like what it was saying is, you know, you've been you've been thinking about him, you've been wondering about how he's doing, and it was responding to that and saying, well, you know, here's how he's doing, like here's where he is, um, and. Over the following weeks, I felt more and more this conviction that I did need to contact him in some way. And that was a difficult um, period trying to figure out how to talk to my husband about it. But eventually he said, look, just, yeah, go ahead and write him and just find out, you know, what he's doing. Tell him what you're doing with your life. And when I did, um, I discovered that my ex um, had just had his first child a few days after that event. So I felt like a lot of that energy that I've been feeling around him that made me want to contact him was connected to the fact that he was anticipating the birth of his child and, and probably wanted to tell me about that. And so through that very blatant synchronicity um, prompted me to get in touch with him and, and really provided a, a lovely moment of, of sharing. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And most likely he did want to contact you and somehow the universe provided that conduit to do so. Yeah. I would assume other people in business have the same experience. When I was practicing as a chiropractor, an old patient's name would pop into my head and like a day or two later they would show up. So maybe it's kind of like the same thing. Like, I don't know why they popped into my head. Maybe they had been thinking they needed to come see me, but then the connection was set and then they showed up. Yeah. Well, I think we're, we are all very connected um, sort of at an unconscious level. There's, there's this telepathic communication that's going on below the radar of our conscious awareness. And, you know, in your case, these are people that you probably weren't thinking that much about. Um, so you noticed when that thought popped up, you were like, there was no reason for that person to pop into my mind. Maybe this means something. And in my case, you know, I was thinking about him a lot. So it, it wasn't like I, it was almost like I was second guessing these sort of telepathic messages that I was getting and, and, and pushing them away because I didn't really want to have to deal with um, that sticky situation. But then to have that information displayed on a telephone and not even my telephone, like if it had happened on my phone, I feel like I could have explained it away as well you know, 
the search algorithm realized I was interested in France and showed me this, but it was my friend's phone. And she said she hadn't ever looked for anything on France. Um, yeah, about France on her phone. And I was just like, there's no way I can't explain this any other way. Yeah. And to have the result be so affirming. Um, it, yeah. It's yeah. It's amazing. Pretty amazing. Let's get to your book. The subtitle of your book is The Best Evidence for the Survival of Human Consciousness. So what kind of evidence can you give us here that our consciousness survives? The approach that I try to take in this book uh, is um, a very holistic approach. So I talk about a lot of different kinds of evidence. The two major categories that I talk about are third-person evidence and first-person evidence. So in the third person category, you have all of these phenomena uh, where people seem to be contacted by somebody who has passed on, whether it's through an apparition, through a dream, through um, a phone call from the dead, quote unquote, um, through mediumship, poltergeists, and synchronicity as well. And then in the first person category, um, you've got of course, near-death experiences, uh, spend a lot of time on that, but also uh, memories of previous lives and uh, people who have memories of the time between lives. So I think it's really important to see not only the strength of each of these kinds of evidence alone, but to see how each of them reinforces the strength of the other kinds of evidence. So some of them might be vulnerable to certain skeptical arguments, but then you have another type of evidence that comes in and say, well, no, really that skeptical argument doesn't work when you look at the evidence as a whole. Well, my audience loves to talk about near-death experiences, and you have a chapter on that. And some people will argue that near-death experiences are just hallucinations by the brain shutting down. So why do you think that's not the case? I think... The single most important piece of evidence that that is not the case is the veridical perceptions that people have when they are in their near-death experience, but specifically people who are in a state of cardiac arrest. And once you're in cardiac arrest for 15 to 20 seconds, you no longer have brain function. So there are people who verifiably did not have brain function and yet were able to perceive events that were happening at that time and their observations could be verified by third parties. Mm. So um, a couple of the cases that I talk about specifically, uh, there's a case uh, with a man who was actually found, he must've had a heart attack or something. He was found out in a meadow. By the time he was brought into the hospital, um, he had been in cardiac arrest for so long that he actually had labor mortis. Like his body was turning blue. The blood was pooling at the bottom of his body. Um, and you know, the, the ambulance crew had been working on him to resuscitate him. But when he arrived at the hospital, he still had no brain function. He didn't, his blood was not circulating. So they decided to change the resuscitation method at this point, because they were in the hospital. So they had, um, um, more possibilities and, I guess they were intubating him at this point. So they realized that he had dentures in that they needed to take out. So one of the nurses took his dentures out and put them um, on the, like a little pullout shelf for the, um, on the crash cart. Well, it still took them like an hour or two to, to resuscitate this man. I think he was still in a coma after that because he had, I mean, this was a very traumatic um, 
situation that he had been through when about a week later when he was conscious again he was looking for his dentures Mm -hmm. and he saw um the nurse go by who had who he had seen take his dentures out he recognized that nurse and he said hey you you know where my dentures are Mm -hmm. and the nurse was like how do you know this and he said i saw you you took them out and you put them on this um little shelf that had all these bottles on it and the nurse was like yeah that is where i put them and in the accounts of this they never tell whether they were able to locate the man's dentures like Mm -hmm. i'm always worried about whether he got his dentures back because i've I've had relatives who've lost their dentures in the hospital and had to get them remade. Uh, but but in, in any case, um, this case was actually uh, first investigated by um, the Dutch cardiologist, Pim van Lommel. So he's wrote, written an extensive um, uh, write-up about this case. And the various nurses and doctors involved in this have been interviewed and they've talked to them about, you know, exactly what state he was in. So all of these different, these different details of the case have been verified um, by third parties and people who understand the process and and the effect on brain function of the state that he was in. So that's one of the cases. Have you come up with your own definition of consciousness and what it is? And if so, what is it for you? That's a great question that nobody's ever asked me before. Um, defining consciousness. So for me, it really has to do with the first person perspective, the idea of what it is to, to be someone or to experience something. Um, some people will say, well, you know, a really advanced robot could be conscious because they're able to do all this processing. They could talk to you just like a person. Um, but I don't think that's consciousness in the the sense that we're talking about here, the sense that is important to, to us and important to this question of does our consciousness survive after death? What we want to know is, am I still going to be aware of living? Am I still going to be able to feel things? Am I still going to be able to, to see things? Am I still going to be able to experience life, you know, with the people that I love interacting with them? So I think ultimately the consciousness that matters to us is this ability to, to be aware and to feel things. Um, I think particularly the feelings of joy and connection to others. Um, but certainly there are many other feelings that we can, we can be conscious of. Do you believe that consciousness is separate from the body? Or do you think it's possible that in this whole 3D mock-up realm, our bodies are an expression of our consciousness? Oh, yeah, so that's not where I thought you were going with the question. So, yeah, are they separate? Um, and is the body an expression of, of consciousness? I really like that way of looking at it um, because, yeah, a lot of times in this field of study, people focus on the fact that our consciousness does go on after the body dies. And so they focus on the fact that they are separable. But I do think that there's, there's a very intimate connection between them. And there is 
as you say, a way in which our body is an expression of that consciousness. It's, it's one way in which that, um, that consciousness manifests itself in this 3D world, gives itself a way to interact with others uh, in a certain setting that has certain limitations and certain challenges, which may be part of why we decide to, to use that body or to enter this life here in these bodies. Um, one of the things that has bothered me about taking seriously the the primacy of consciousness, I like to say, because I do think that the consciousness is primary and then this physical world is um, something that is inside of consciousness. It's a creation of that consciousness. But I, I worry sometimes that that makes people think that this world isn't important and that we don't have to, um, it's not important to take care of the natural world. It's not important to, um, re to take care of our, our physical bodies uh, because ultimately we're spirits. Ultimately we're going to go back to the spirit world. Mm -hmm. So this is all just sort of a, a game. It's all sort of a, a ruse. Um, but I think it's more important than that. I do think I really like what you said about how we are an expression of that consciousness and, and other people are an expression of their consciousness. Their body is an expression of their consciousness. And I do think even the natural world, animals, plants, even, you know, rivers, rocks, things we think of as inanimate, I think that they too ultimately are expressions of a, another dimension of consciousness. And so even though um, that's only one way in which they might express themselves and, you know, uh, near-death experiencers who have experienced the other side um, say, well, you know, there's expanded consciousness over there. There's so much more um than just what we see here in the physical world. But that doesn't mean that what we see here in the physical world isn't important and that we can't learn by, by learning how to connect with other people through the expression of their consciousness that is here. And that we can learn about, um, learn about ourselves and about our relationship to other consciousness by being in nature, by connecting with plants and animals uh, so saying consciousness is primary doesn't doesn't mean that the physical world isn't important. It's a mm -hmm. it's a gateway. It, it, and I would like to see a switch to a paradigm where it means that the physical is even more important because it's never just physical. It's always an opening to something even deeper. It's a physical sign of something else that's on the other side of it. I had on Dr. Eben Alexander, you probably know him. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about memory. And he said, and I think he was citing someone else's research, that you can cut out any part of the brain and you will not lose long-term memory. You can lose the ability to convert short-term into long-term, but you will not lose long-term memory. And so he was saying that long-term memories are stored in, he, I think he called it the quantum hologram. Some people will say that, you know, you have a higher self and, and more of your self or more of your consciousness exists in another realm and only a piece of it comes here 
Have you considered any of that? And if so, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a pretty accurate way to put it, at least, I mean, given the evidence that I have seen, um, which I'd say, I'm trying to think of the sorts of evidence that bear particularly on this question. Um, I think most of our evidence in this regard comes from near-death experiencers like um, Alexander, but also from people who have memories of the life between lives. Um, and, and also people who seem to have the ability to connect with that larger consciousness, um, even without being near death, but they have this sort of, whether it's an out-of-body experience or, I mean, they're still in their body, but are somehow able to access that. And it does seem like there is a there is a higher self um it's hard to know really where the boundary between the self and something that's other than the self starts so i mean i, I think higher self is a pretty good mm-hmm. term because it's like yeah it's yourself but there's more consciousness there there's more awareness there's more um intellectual capacity to understand things that we could never understand here in our body but then also you get to, as that consciousness gets wider and wider, it's, it's hard to say, well, when does it stop becoming, stop being me? And when is it something else? And maybe ultimately it never, it never stops being me. It just brings in everyone else as well. And so it's, it's more like we, um, when you get to that level, certainly the capacity certainly our our limited human consciousness is connected on this this deeper level with a mind that has a capacity that outstrips anything we can even imagine and we do we seem to be able to access that through through near-death experience if nothing else so yeah we definitely have higher selves. Um, but I'm not sure that there's a line between us and, and the rest of consciousness. Do you think people on the other side are trying to communicate with us? Absolutely. Yes. Um, that's something that seems very clear from the research that has been done. Um, whether it's laboratory studies of mediumship or it's, um, the, abundant studies of spontaneous cases of after-death communication. They absolutely are. There are so many cases where you have um, a deceased person who has a specific message that they are trying to get across. And if they don't get a, get it across um, in the first uh, method that they try, they will try another method uh, with the same person, or they may go to another person who seems more receptive and try to give them that same uh, message. Uh, one of the cases that comes to mind uh, is a case of a woman who she and her kids were kind of in a difficult situation um, financially and medically, and they needed to move somewhere else, but they didn't have the means to do this. And she was on the outs with her own father and who would have been somebody who could have helped her, but she was like, I'm not talking to him. So she was in kind of this desperate situation Well, she had a dream one night 
that her grandmother, her father's mother, came to her and she said, you need to, you need to ask Bill, the Bill being her father. She's like, you need to ask Bill because he will help you go to him. And the woman said, no, I am not going to, I'm not going to talk to him. Um, if something is going to happen to reconcile us, he is going to have to make the first move. So a few days passed and she got a letter from her dad and he ended up coming to help her move. Well, she talked to her mom about why her dad suddenly wrote her this letter. And her mom told her that the same night that the daughter had had a dream, the father had had a dream that his mom came to him. Mm. And she said, look, your daughter is in trouble. She needs your help. Um, she's not going to come to you and ask for it. You have to make the first move. And uh, so, I mean, that in itself seems pretty evidential, but there was one other really cool evidential aspect to this case, which was the daughter um, heard the grandmother refer to her father as Bill, which his full name was Wilbur. And when um, the grandmother was alive, uh, she had always referred to him as Wilbur. She'd never used Bill for him. And so, you know, after the reconciliation, the daughter asked her mom, why do you think grandma called him Bill when she came to talk to me? And she said, well, actually, your grandmother started calling him Bill just in the last few weeks of his life. I mean, who knows why, but she had actually started using that name for him. So it was like an extra little piece of confirmation that it really was her um, pulling the strings to try to get, <laughs> try to get her son and her granddaughter together again. Mm, that's great. Out of all the evidence that you provided in your essay for the Bigelow contest, what do you think is your strongest evidence for consciousness beyond death? All right, I'm going to give you a two-pronged answer because I think I think the sheer variety of evidence, the, the wide span of different kinds of evidence together, that is so important. I mean, that's for me, where the strongest evidence lies is just the fact that there's this sheer quantity mm -hmm. of this after-death contact and of these first-person memories of, of having died and survived. But if we have to talk about one specific kind, I would focus in on it's hard to make a choice, but for the purposes of this podcast, I will focus in on the um, children's memories of the life between lives. Hmm. And the reason that I say that is because all the third person evidence is, is subject to this skeptical argument that maybe it's all just a simulation of contact with that person. Because we do know that living people have a lot of unconscious psychic abilities. So even these, you know, an apparition coming to you um, and maybe even telling you something that you didn't know beforehand, or, or like the dream case we were just talking about, like the grandmother calling the son Bill, even in those cases, it could be that your mind is projecting this, you know, image, this hallucination of this person, and you have psychically gotten this other information that you've 
given to this hallucination in order to make it more convincing to yourself and to help convince yourself that this person does go on. And so this is called the um, living agent side skeptical explanation of, of these third person phenomena. So living people's psychic abilities might explain them. Now, some of the other forms of first person um, phenomena, like the near-death experience or memories of, of past lives, those help to, to mitigate the, the force of this skeptical argument. But I really think that the most, the most damaging one is these cases of children who remember not only having lived a previous life where we can actually go and verify the things that they remember about being this previous person, but they remember what it was like after their body died. They remember, you know, viewing their funeral. Um, they remember watching their loved ones after their death. Um, and in particular, there are cases where they remember having communicated from the afterlife with their loved ones from their previous life. So you've got cases where they remember having appeared as apparitions, uh, cases where they remember having appeared in dreams, even a couple cases where they remember having had uh, poltergeist effects on their family. So they moved stuff um, or they caused an accident that the family then remembered. Um, I think one of my favorite cases uh, here, I think it's from Burma, or I mean, it was Burma at the time, it's Myanmar now, but um, in this case, there was a young boy who remembered a previous life with lots of details that were verified. And this case was actually investigated by Ian Stevenson, who was known for his very thorough, careful investigation of all of the details of these cases. So he was actually able to take the details that this little boy gave him and find the woman, or sorry, um, uh, find the man that he had been previously and find the woman that he had been married to in his previous life. So this little boy not only remembered the details of that life, but he remembered having come to his widow in a dream and told her specifically that he had left some money, just a small bill of money in a basket in a white handkerchief and that she should go find it. And then the little boy wanted to know if the widow actually remembered having um, had this dream. And so Ian Stevenson went and asked and she said, yes, I had a dream that my husband came to me and he said that there was this five chop note in a white handkerchief inside of a basket and I went and found it. And she said, you know, the money wasn't really the important thing because it wasn't that much money. She said, but, but just knowing that that information was verified, let me feel close to him. And I felt reassured that he continued to exist. And how much more once she discovered that there was a young boy who remembered having come to her in a dream. It's, it's just fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when you've got cases like that, um, where somebody actually remembers doing the appearing, then clearly this is not just a hallucination, even a psychically, um, uh, psychically informed hallucination. Um, no, there's somebody who remembers having that, being conscious, like we were talking about before, having that awareness and having the desire to communicate and seeing it through.
That's amazing. So after all your research, have you came up with your own conclusion of why we come here over and over again? A lot of people talk about it. And when I say a lot of people, a lot of near-death experiencers um, talk about it in terms of learning. There's something that we're supposed to learn while we're here. And a lot of them talk too about us having a mission that we're supposed to accomplish, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. Um, people who have memories of their life before this life, there aren't a lot of them that remember sort of their plan, they, who remember what their mission is, or they remember what was planned for them. But there are a few of them, and, and some of the few who do remember have some very detailed memories of the process of planning and choosing their future life. And some of those cases, it does seem like learning is involved. Um, it also seems like helping others is often a reason. And, and maybe those two things overlap. So you're learning to help others. Um, but I think there may be something, maybe even a higher level way of looking at it. Because sometimes I think we focus too much on this idea of there's a lesson that you're supposed to be learning. Because it it can sometimes make you feel like, well, if like you're not good enough the way that you are, there's you're, you're supposed to be improving yourself in some way. And if you're struggling uh, um, in your life, if you're having a hard time, then it's because you're not good enough. You're not learning your lesson well enough. And it, maybe that's just my evangelical background talking, because that was certainly a feeling that um, I got growing up. But I think there's a there's a higher perspective from which we could look at that is and from which yeah sure we, we might be learning some be learning some things but the spirit in which we are learning them is more a spirit of exploration and and joy so it's not that you know, God's up there and he's like okay you need to go down and be in this body because you need to learn how to you know, be nicer to people, or you need to learn how to do this or that. But rather, from our, you know, state of expanded consciousness before this life, we're thinking about, oh, well, wouldn't it be awesome to like, to learn how to, um, to be a, a handicapped person, you know, we have this particular handicap that you have to learn how to overcome, or you get to be part of this particular community. And these things that from our life here that look like they would be, or, or that, that are really difficult things, um, from our this perspective of our higher self, I think we see it more as a challenge and something, um, something exciting to do. It's sort of like if you think of um, like deciding to play a video game and obviously life is much more involved than a video game. But when you're like deciding what video game you're going to play or or even, you know, what movie you're going to watch, like you might choose like a really horrific movie, like you might want to be scared or you might choose a tearjerker, like 
you know, and, but you have this, this knowledge that well, you're just choosing this experience for this short amount of time. And yeah, it's going to be kind of cathartic and it's going to be exciting um, when you're in the midst of it and you're like bawling your eyes out or you're <laughs> really scared of the images on the screen, you might second guess your choice for a moment or two. Uh, but then once the movie is over and you leave the theater, you're like, oh, wow, that was that was a really good movie. That was a lot of fun. So I, I'm saying all that because I just I don't want I don't think that whatever learning we're doing here um, is learning to is should make us feel like we're not good enough already. We, we are good enough, but we we're we're growing expansive beings and we just, we want to experience and learn even more than we already do. I believe in your book, Beyond Death, you talk about the super psi living agent and psi hypothesis. Can you tell us more about what that is? Yeah, so this goes back to what I was saying about the uh, people who remember being apparitions or being or coming to people in dreams after their death because the the living agent side slash super side different people use different names for it um that hypothesis is this idea that our after death after death contacts are just simulations are just illusions and so it's important that we know about these cases uh where somebody had a first person conscious experience of being the apparition or being the the person in in the dream to show that that hypothesis isn't adequate to cover all of the all of the cases. Some of my near-death experiencers have said during their NDE, they either went to other planets or they saw aliens or other non-human intelligent beings. Do you have, have you thought about that or come across that? And if so, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, I mean, there there are some really wild, I mean, like amazing experiences that people report. And, and sometimes they can seem like they are uh, contradictory too. So like you'll have people who have um, experiences where they, you know, meet Jesus and uh, near death, near death experiences where they meet Jesus and, um, and maybe even are told certain theological things that uh other people who have near-death experiences they don't see jesus um they may even see that some people you know have seen muhammad uh and they're told something completely different so there is a large variety in these experiences and i think one thing we have to realize when we're comparing them is that everything that people are remembering about their near-death experience is something that they're remembering now being back in their human body with their human brain. So there's a, there's a filter that's interpreting everything that they experienced on the other side. So some of the, some of the seeming contradictions can be explained as contradictions in the overlay that were that's being put on that experience. Now, on the other hand, it's not necessarily always an overlay that our you know brain is just sort of mechanically putting on things. 
there does seem to be evidence that the beings that are interacting with us in these experiences, whatever their true nature is, sometimes will project a certain um, a certain appearance um, and will, will say certain things about themselves to put us at ease or to help us understand what's going on in a framework that's more comfortable for us. So I think we can feel sometimes like that's kind of dishonest or deceptive. And why would they do that? Why wouldn't they just tell us the truth about who they are? But I think honestly that the truth about their identity is something that would be very, very hard for us to understand. Um, and even if we could understand it, understanding that might not be the ultimate purpose of the experience that we're going through. Um, it's not necessarily to, you know, give us all of the, you know, information about the workings of the entire universe in that experience. It's to have some kind of impact, presumably on the life that we're going to lead after we come back to our body. So it may be more important just to set the stage for the information that we need that we need to be given about our life and about the future course of that life. Um, that being said, I think that there is a lot of very useful information um, that comes through these near-death experiences. Um, information that can help us understand how consciousness works, that can help us even you know, develop further develop our technologies um, and our understanding of, of psychic phenomena. So it's, yeah, there's important information that comes through that. I forgot where I was going exactly with this. But yeah, there's, it was something important that I was going to say here too. <laughs> It's okay. It happens to me all the time. It felt, it felt, it felt so important. Oh, well, maybe it'll come back to me later. Since you've worn the hat of being an atheist, why do you think so many people in the scientific community are against near-death experience or the theory of it? Okay. So first thing did come back to me really quick. Okay. So all I wanted to say was, I think that we can get really important information and eye-opening information from near-death experiences, but it is always important to check that against um, the 3D reality and to, to test it out. So don't just take um, at face value what you hear in that experience, but, but test it and probe it further. Um, and certainly with any scientific information, yeah, maybe that's a starting point for some experiments that you do, but it does need to be verified in our reality in order for us to be sure that it's useful in the way that we want it to be. Okay, so now moving on. Um, so why is the NDE not taken seriously by more people in the scientific community? Well, it's a for a lot of people, it's a lot easier not to take it seriously. If you're somebody who is very much in the mainstream scientific community where it's understood that the physical world is the only thing that exists, um, opening the possibility that that may not be the way that reality works at all is going to be a little bit scary, first of all, but also even if you get over 
the fear of this paradigm change, how the implications for how you do your work as a scientist, uh, as a philosopher, as a medical doctor, um, after that, they're huge. You're going to have to revamp everything that you think, every way that you do science. And that's just more than a lot of people are willing to take on. Like, they they don't really want to tackle those big questions. They want to stay in their, their lane and do, you know, the work that they were trained to do. And so I think it's, you know, I think it's beginning to change. It is becoming, near-death experiences are becoming much better known. There's, how could they not be when, you know, 5% of the general population has had one um, and, and people are starting to talk about it more. And people are doing this kind of research that shows that, that they are veridical, that they're not just hallucinations. And so I think we're gonna, we're gonna start to see more and more change here. As you know, just in the last decade, we've had um, more and more medical professionals who have had near-death experiences themselves, like Evan Alexander, but there are other examples as well. And so when you have people that are clearly trained, well-qualified to understand the science behind this. And then they say, but that science does, our science doesn't explain what happened to me. I think you have more and more people who are waking up to, there are really some bigger questions that we need to ask here. And hopefully there will be more and more people who are willing to step up to the plate and, and to think outside the box. Your previous book is called The Source and Significant of Coincidences. Is there something paranormal behind them that we just can't perceive? I think there often is. Um, I'm not quite at the point where I would say that nothing is ever a coincidence because that very well might be a lot of things that are chance in your life or that um, aren't meaningful in the way that you might like them to be. Um, but I absolutely think that there are things that, yeah, you know, mainstream scientists would say, oh, yeah, that's just a coincidence. Uh, but it's it's not. Because when you look at the scientific research, not only into the survival of consciousness after death, but you look at the uh, all of the psi research, the research that's done into um, telepathy, into remote viewing, into psychokinesis. It's been verified in, if not countless, but I mean, a huge number of laboratory studies that we do have modes of perception that transcend what we ought to be able to have um, in the physicalist paradigm. And when you realize that, that those other modes of perception exist, and not just perception, but also your ability to affect things through psychokinesis, to affect things mentally. You realize that there's something, there's something working in the background of our, of our entire lives. Whatever is, is shaping the flow of events, it's not just our conscious intentions, but it's something that's, yeah, that's on background. And when you also bring in these experiences of near-death experiencers and other people who have had um, experiences with that wider extended consciousness, you realize that that 
it's not just it's not just us who might be creating coincidences for ourselves. I mean, I think that's some of them. I think, you know, um, like you were talking about when somebody pops into your head and then they call you a couple of days later, like that may just be, you know, telepathy. Like you could tell that the person was thinking about you and then you get a call from them. So I would say like, well, that's a coincidence that you psychically created for yourself. Mm-hmm. But I, but then there's another level. Cause some people, when that happens to them, they ask, well, does that mean, you know, that God wants me to contact them? Or is this a sign that I ought to move in a particular direction? Is it a confirmation of something that I was thinking about? So there is this bigger question of does that wider consciousness influence the events of our lives to try to steer us in certain directions. And I think that it absolutely does. I certainly have many examples from my own life. Well, I mean, I think the the one that I shared with you about the phone in, in France, that steered me not only to um, some healing in that relationship, but it steered the whole course of my professional life. I mean, that's why I'm here today. And there are so many examples of people where coincidences have steered them to something that is so essential to their future life. There are also cases, though, of people who experience coincidences and they think that it's telling them to do a certain thing and they do that thing and then it turns out really badly for them. <laughs> um, it's one of the cases that I talk about in the introduction to my coincidence book is um Stanislav Grof talks the, the you know famous um, altered states of consciousness. Uh, well, he's not a guru, um, but he, he's a psychiatrist. But he's very well known for um, his work in altered states of consciousness. But he talks about um, meeting his first wife through this amazing string of coincidences. Like it just seemed destined, meant to be, and like when they when they had their wedding ceremony, even there were these gorgeous double rainbows and all of this stuff happening. And then he woke up the day after the wedding and had this feeling that something was terribly, terribly wrong. And after that, like his, his wife and he just fought, like they could, they could not agree. And they ended up getting divorced really soon after that. And so I can imagine, you know, him saying, well, what? what were all those coincidences about? Like, because most of us would think, well, the universe is leading me to this person because they're going to, you know, make me happy. They're going to be my happily ever after. But sometimes coincidences lead us in a direction that isn't necessarily a happy one, Um, but it may have been necessary for some other reason. Um, And I don't know, know the whole trajectory of Groff's life, Um, After that, I do know that he married someone else later who was very much aligned with his professional interests. But um, in my own case, there are coincidences that I've had to kind of second guess and say, well, maybe, you know, I'm expecting that this is going to be the result if I follow along with this coincidence. But maybe that's not exactly, maybe I shouldn't count on that. Um, And so I've learned to I've learned, I think, that the most important thing that we can take from a coincidence is, or a synchronicity, I tend to use them synonymously, 
But the most important thing we can take from that experience is an ability to listen to our own intuition. Because we have to use our own intuition in order to figure out what the synchronicity is telling us, how it's illuminating our life in some way. And I, I think if you follow those events blindly, you can get yourself into a lot of trouble and you're not necessarily going to be happy with the outcome. But if you use them as a kind of mirror to help you look more deeply at your own emotions, your own desires, um, then you learn, you learn how to get in touch with that higher consciousness yourself. And you, you aren't depending on the signs themselves, but you're learning a skill about how to understand yourself and your, your life path. What do you think about repetitive numbers like 444, 1111? I think it can be easy to get caught up in them. Um, so I'm, I don't tend to encourage people to like pay a lot of attention to number coincidences. Um, it's very easy to see them everywhere just because you're paying more attention to the number. And uh, it's also very easy if you're paying attention to it for your unconscious psychic abilities to direct you to places where you're going to see that number more often, or, you know, to psychically, you know, make you look at the clock when it is that time. Mm. So I'm a little bit reticent to, to say, oh yeah, well, they're important. But at the same time, I will say that there is a number, the number 33 is very important for me in, in my life path. And there have been some very important moments where it has shown up and I'll just tell you about one of them. When I was first starting um, my research on coincidences, um, I probably I was researching for th three or four years um, really intensively. And I had written a paper about the statistics of coincidences and how could you tell whether it's really, um, whether they're occurring at a rate above chance. So I worked on this paper for a long time, um, sent it to a, you know, a few mainstream journals to see if they would be interested in it, got turned down, um, sent it to the Journal of Scientific Exploration. They were taking a really long time to review it. And I was sort of getting frustrated about how long the whole process was taking. Well, finally, it was accepted by the Journal of Scientific Exploration and they sent me the proofs for uh, when it would be published. And when I get the proofs, I see that it is the first article in volume 33 of the journal. And so, I mean, that number had already been very important to me. And to see that on my very first publication about coincidences affirmed to me that the timing was all okay. Like it was, it was meant to come out at this particular time and I didn't need to be so frustrated about, you know, a few obstacles along the way. If someone wants to find your books, do they find them on Amazon or your website or both? Um, Amazon, yeah, or whatever um, online book distributor you use. They're available everywhere. Um, there's uh, Beyond Death, which is the most recent one on the survival of consciousness, and then the source of significance of coincidences, the tongue tire. Um, and then The Supreme Victory of, Heart, of the Heart is actually a memoir. That's a separate book. Um, uh, 
which isn't as paranormal. It's more about my spiritual journey. Um, and then I also have a philosophical book um, uh, that's more for academics. But anybody who is interested in academic philosophy um, should check that out too. That's the feeling of value. But yeah, you can find them on Amazon. Um, uh, and if you want more information, you can certainly find me on my website. Uh, just Google Sharon Rowlett, R-A-W-L-E-T-T-E, and you'll find it without a problem. Are you working on anything else that you want us to know about? I have a, um, a couple of really interesting book chapters that are going to come out this year. Um, one of them that I'm really excited about, one of them is actually in, in French, uh, but the English language one that is coming out is going to be in a new anthology put out by Jack Hunter called Deep Weird. And I've written a chapter in there about deeply weird synchronicities. Hmm. So it's, it's some really cool cases. So if your listeners are interested in that, um, that book should be out probably in the summer or early fall. Deep weird. All right. Well, before we finish up, can you leave us with one last positive message? I'm going to reiterate the thing that I said about intuition, because I think it's important, not just for the synchronicities um, to use your intuition to interpret them, but also any kind of after death contact or, or any kind of after death contact that you may want, and maybe it's not forthcoming because there are a lot of people out there who would really love to have um, an apparition of their loved one or have some important synchronicity that comes from them. And it seems hard to, uh, like they keep asking for it and asking for it and they don't get, um, they don't get that contact. I think it's really important in those cases, whether you've had the contact or not, to use to use either the contact or the lack of contact to motivate you to go inside. Because ultimately, the closest contact that we have with our loved ones and with our higher self is not in physical signs, not in physical apparitions that come to us, but is through our, our consciousness. And so if we can learn how to listen to ourselves and listen to those, those promptings that come to us, like that name that comes out of nowhere, um, or that reassurance that comes out of somewhere that just says, it's going to be okay, or you're not alone. I think that's the most important thing. You use all of the physical stuff, all of the cool paranormal stuff as a tool to get in tune with the, the deepest part of who you are. Dr. Rowlett, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest today. I really appreciate you and I wish you the best. Thank you. All the best to you too, Jeff. Thanks for the work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.